My name is Christina Crook, and I am the author of The Joy of Missing Out. I want to welcome you to the JomoCast, a podcast for individuals who want to learn how to thrive in a digital age. Jomo is the joy of missing out on the right things, things like toxic hustle, comparison, and digital drain to make space for life-giving commitments to people and work that bring us peace, meaning, and joy. I want to say a big welcome to new patrons, Claire Kilmer, Rob Schellenberg, Jumana Abu Gozela, the founder and CEO of Pivot for Humanity, and Michelle Stern-Becknia. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast. The JomoCast is 100% listener supported. Each episode takes about 40 hours to create and involves the work of our composer and producer, Tom. Hello. Social media lead, Rebecca. Hello. And me. We believe there are new and even more urgent questions to be asked now about digital well-being, given that most of us will need to depend almost exclusively on digital channels for social support for the foreseeable future. On the podcast, we answer questions like, how can I stop comparing online and trust that I am enough? How do I shift my attention from passively consuming online to creatively connecting with neighbors and loved ones? How do I build the self-discipline to see things through? How do I stay on track doing the things I say I want to do without getting hijacked online? How do I make space for rest and play? How do I succeed in life without burning out? This podcast is made possible by you, our listeners all over the world, from Brazil to Australia, the USA to Singapore. Please support the JomoCast for just $3 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash JomoCast and sign up today. You will get Jomo swag and a handwritten note of thanks from me in the mail, a shout out on the podcast and a place on the Jomo wall of thanks for all of time. You'll also have the opportunity to ask future guests your questions. And thank you for supporting the content that supports you. Welcome back to the JomoCast. I'm super excited about the episode I'm sharing today with Damian Bradfield, the CCO, the Chief Creative Officer at WeTransfer, and author of a new book called The Trust Manifesto. We're at a very unusual moment in modern history where a roughly equal number of generations alive today have either a lived experience of near total personal privacy and with it great consumer power over the way they were marketed to or a lived experience of nearly every experience, action, and statement being collected, analyzed, and sold as commodities by the companies selling us their goods, ideas, and policies online to the point that we can be offered something before we consciously know we want it. Have you ever had that experience where you see an ad on one of your social media platforms about something that you've never verbally said out loud that you want? This is the new world we're living in. How did that happen? Damian Bradfield is the chief creative officer and co-founder of WeTransfer and WePresent, the author of The Trust Manifesto, host of the Influence podcast, and the creator of Empty Day, which is sort of like a UK version of the National Day of Unplugging. 
Damien's file sharing company, WeTransfer, sends over one and a half million files a day. It's a much beloved company. In 2016, he moved from Amsterdam to California to set up WeTransfer's U.S. headquarters, where he's been instrumental in shaping the company's policy in support of the creative community. Damien is proud that companies like his recognize and value our rights to personal privacy and their responsibilities to their community. But he's painfully aware as a creator, consumer, and also a parent that the landscape is anything but benevolent. Damien is a powerful amplifier of the responsibility of tech companies in their roles as creators of some of the most powerful and influential presences in our lives. To not hurt us, to not trick us, not manipulate us, and to own the staggering impact their products have on the very fabric of our lives. In his new book, The Trust Manifesto, What We Need to Do to Create a Better Internet, which I devoured, he describes the web as our new collective city and asks the question, are these the conditions we want to be living in? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Damien Bradfield. I wanted to start out our conversation today um, with asking you, what does the joy of missing out mean to you? It's a really good question. And I'm not sure if you'd have asked me perhaps even five years ago, I would have known at all what it meant. And definitely having been, you know, and I obviously still am in the world of technology, I think it wasn't until I actively decided that I was going to leave Instagram and Facebook and um everything other than Twitter. I, for some reason, I can't give up Twitter. Um, but it wasn't until then that I actually really understood how relaxing it was to not feel that sort of pressure or anxiety about um, constantly constantly being scared that you are missing out on something. And uh, that was definitely my feeling with Instagram was that I was just addicted to the idea that, you know, you had to see and comment and, and post something to... And make sure that people were up to speed and um it's absolute nonsense of course and now when you know if you haven't used social media for a long time then you realize that it's absolute nonsense and your friends remain your friends and you don't um you don't miss out really on anything actually you gain so much by not being addicted to your phone and not having to desperately grab for it every five minutes just check that something else happened that um that's a revelation that i only experienced in the last five years for sure and something i mean i desperately try and teach my kids I had a very bad moment where I threw my son's phone out of the car window in uh, on PCH near Malibu as we were trying to show them you know, the devastation of the forest fires in Malibu. And um, I got a little bit upset because my son was just watching, looking at Instagram and not focusing on the sort of devastation that was around him. No matter how many times I'd ask him to put his phone down and just focus and have a look around and experience you know, how bad it must be for these people living here. He kept getting sucked back into Instagram <laughs> and I just lost it and ran down the window and threw his phone out the window. And I've never seen my son so upset. Honestly, you'd think that I'd shot the dog. It was devastating. But that evening he was skateboarding again and he hadn't done it in months. So I yeah. <laughs> have no regrets that um, it was a bit extreme and not the, my proudest parenting moment, but definitely one that I think was necessary and helped both of us. 
don't know if that answers your um, question, but I had absolutely answered that question. And we are we're doing this interview in late March. You know, we're in extraordinary, unprecedented times right now. And today there's even, you know, m- newer and even more urgent questions to be asked about digital well-being, given the fact that most of us are going to be more reliant on digital channels than we ever have needed to before because of social distancing. Why does digital well-being, as I hear you share your story about your son, obviously there was a lack of well-being in that relationship online. Why does it concern you? It concerns me because no matter what you can do with technology, no matter how much fun you can have with it, no matter how much you can you know, consume or learn or discover or you know, be entertained by, whatever it is, um, none of it is a replacement for physical connection. I'm not, I mean, as you said, right, we're living through a very strange time at the moment with COVID-19 shutting everything down. And what I think is really interesting at this very moment is that I really believe that so many people are going to have a, a very cold bath in the reality of what it is to, um, to be isolated to such an extreme that I, I'm really quite optimistic that once we come out of it, People will be less on their phones and less behind a screen than ever before and longing for physical connection um, because they would have had this quite horrendous experiment in what, you know, potentially the future could have looked like had we just continued to progress spending and being more and more absorbed um, by technology or, you know, screens literally every day. And the thing that was concerning me, and I'm I'm actually less concerned today because I, I, I think the situation might actually be a wake-up call to a lot of people. But what was concerning me was just, you know, if I look, and particularly if I look to my kids, you know, the technology is built to be addictive. You know, the phones are made to look super sexy, so you want to have them on you all the time. They're an accessory. They are, you know, a status mm-hmm. symbol. They fit perfectly in your pocket. They do everything for you. No longer need to have a watch. You don't need to have an address book. You don't need to have anything on you other than that phone. And for a 10-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old, it's, it's life or death. And when I threw my son's phone out the window, I could see you know, how critical it had become to him. And that's, that's worrying, right? I mean, honestly, if you'd have seen his face, it was like I had murdered the dog. The, the, the expression was just horror that you know, I could have thrown this lifeline of his away and that he was going to have lost all of his connections and lost his status and lost his Snapchat streaks and, you know, We'd have to create new identities and new logins for everything. And he didn't have passwords for this, that, and the other. And I just looked at him and went, you know, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. It's not real. Um, but, it, you know, it had become so real, and it is so real for so many of us, that I think, um, you know, it's, a, it's an obsession, right? And that's what a lot of, you know, tech companies were producing was, um, you know, obsessive, compulsive, addictive um, pieces of software um, without really any concern or care for what it what it was going to do to people's um, minds or uh, uh, emotional well being, again, a slight mm-hmm. a, a slight you know, beacon of hope was that even recently Mark Zuckerberg, who I'm assuming is at home spending more time with his family than he's ever done in his life, probably thought to himself, "This is quite bad. You know, I haven't I haven't got all these people around me, and I'm not traveling and flying everywhere. So I'm I'm at home like regular, you know, Joe Public." And everyone is in a similar situation to everybody else at the moment, which is probably the first time we'll ever experience this, or maybe the last time we'll ever experience this. And Mark Zuckerberg commented that you know, he was very concerned for those people that were 
um, you know, looking and vetting content on, on Facebook. And he was concerned for their mental well-being. And that was the first time I, you know, he, he's ever mentioned or talked about mental well-being. Um, and I believe that's come about only because of this situation. So, mm. you know, if someone like Mark Zuckerberg is beginning to show uh, a, a slightest bit of empathy, um, again, you know, I'm optimistic that it might, we might be turning a corner and these tech you know, giants might be beginning to think about the tools that they've created and what impacts they have um, in the hands of those that are, you know, less fortunate and less able to, to choose or to, um, you know, to join a sports club or to join, uh, you know, go to a bar or to eat out or whatever else. There's so much we could unpack there in terms of the hopes and desires we have of the habits, you know, and practices we're been forced into during this unexpected season of time and how many we're going to carry out. I think I, I hear you, that seems like a longing and a desire for these, you know, these habits of being, especially spending more time with family to continue afterwards. And I think that's something I'm hearing people like Bill Gates say and um, and others. And it's definitely something that I hope to practice with my own family and encourage those around me to do. But it's going to be really interesting to watch people, um, yeah, choose what's really essential after all of the dust settles, I guess. Yeah, and it's a time frame, right, when we really have to look after one another. It's, it's so it's so difficult, isn't it, in society when you have, you know, there's so much discrepancies between, you know, wealth and income and education and everything. It's so big um, that it's always, I think it's difficult for a lot of people to um, reflect and look at others and empathize based on their situation versus your own or their own. But in this context, we are all challenged with pretty much the same environment and the same challenges as, as everybody else. So I think, you know, if, if, we're, if we're going to help each other, if we're going to help society, I think this is the moment to do it because um, we're, we've all basically been given this sort of reset moment that is forcing us to have to look around and go, okay, well, yeah, this is tough. I'm finding it really tough. How are you finding it? Wow, he's on his own. He must be in excruciating pain because he's got no one to talk to and he's, you know, he's been divorced three times and he's sitting at home where his kids are on the other side of the world. God, that must be excruciating. How can we help them? Look at that small business. I used to go there all the time and I was totally reliant on, you know, shopping there or eating out there three times a week. They're going to go bankrupt. What can I do for them? I think, um, you know, this, this could be quite you know, an interesting moment where we understand and begin to appreciate the importance of you know, connectivity and human connection more, more so than ever before. I, don't, I really yeah. hope that we don't come out of this period thinking, shit, that was great. I want to spend the rest of my life on Zoom and Google Hangout because this is the future. <laughs> That's going to be. We love you, Zoom. Thank oh you. Oh my God, it's going to be a tragedy if that is the outcome. No, I mean it's great, right? Zoom serves a purpose, but you know, yeah, it can't be our lifeblood. Well, certainly, I would not be able to hack it. Let's put it that way. Maybe everybody else can. I definitely don't think I could. Eight weeks of this, I'm going to go crazy. Absolutely, no. You're 100 percent right. I was just joking, joking about Zoom. Although I, I can't imagine a time that I've ever felt more grateful for technology than I do in this very moment. No, sure. But it's a bit like a, you know, a lifeboat, right? It's, it's fantastic to have it there, but you, you, know, you don't want to live in it. You don't want to use it every day. It's just a nice thing to have to help you manage to continue with your get life or to get through. Yeah, exactly. 
know today is not a regular workday for you, Damien, but I am curious to understand as someone who is a tech founder, a CCO, an author, how do you, what are two actionable things that you do to keep the on and offline balance right in your life? So I'm curious about a work practice that you use and a personal practice you use in terms of using technology well and not letting it sort of take over your life? Um, so within the family, we have sort of some rules. So um, no one checks their phone before breakfast and no one checks their phone or has their phone anywhere near a, you know, a table that we're eating at. So, you know, be that, I mean, today it's breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, but, you know, at any of those moments, um, we, there's not a phone in sight and it's really just we're, we're talking and communicating with one another. Phones never go into the bedroom, so they're always left downstairs. They, they all charge downstairs at night. Um, and, you know, an hour before I go to bed, I don't you know, want to be anywhere near a screen just to make sure that my mind at least is, um, is unwinding and uh, try to make sure that I'm not being triggered anymore. But like an hour before I go to sleep. Um, so that in that time, we're either talking, having a cup of tea or something or you know, reading a book. And then work wise. Now, I would love to say that I have this incredibly strict regime, which I, you know, I get I get through every day. I'm not a guy who goes to the gym at 5 a.m. I, you know, I'm not, you know, already doing calls from my car or on the train at 630 in the morning. I, you know, I eat breakfast every morning with my kids. I try not to basically check email until after 11 and just to work on you know what I want to work on. Um, if I can, I try to keep my diary and my calendar full in the mornings uh, three days a week so that no one else can plan anything. And that's, t- that's my time to think about, to write, to, you know, to, to work on a presentation, to work on um, feedback or reviews or whatever it is that I need to get done. And then only after that time, get into getting back to what everybody else needs. The thing, you know, the thing I really struggle with is, is, is um, messaging. So all of that is great. And then there's frigging Slack and WhatsApp. And those two things I haven't got to grips with because they just seem to like pop into my life. And I haven't, I'm not disciplined enough to switch them off so that they, you know, they distract me. Because with certain people, I have a relationship with them on Slack or on WhatsApp. That I don't have on iMessage or email, um, so I'm always I always feel a bit guilty about switching them off. That I might snub somebody for a couple of days. Um, so those two things keep mm. you know screw up my whole plan. <laughs> <laughs> Do you give any attention to those before eleven a.m. or is that also after eleven a.m.? No, no. So I don't. I mean, I really try not to touch anything uh, until after eleven. So the only thing I'll do is I'll I'll get on the phone or I'll you know, I'll message uh, my family or something. But um, I really try. It's not always it's not always possible. I really try to keep up everything until eleven. That's a fantastic practice. I think a lot of people could put into practice themselves. And I love that you are completely honest that it isn't you know a rigid thing. It's more of a regime. Um, you know, and you've got a lot of intentionality about how you're spending your time because I think. A lot of us are tired of hearing about the uh, CEOs that are like you kind of joked about up at five in the morning or even earlier um, and, you know, ramping right up and life hacking their way through to make every moment count. And I love that you start the day eating breakfast with your children. That's really wonderful. Yeah, they're not always wonderful, but it is uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is always nice to, oh, you know how it goes, right? I mean, some some days you can... Um, you can have best intentions and then 
it doesn't work out and you get dragged into meetings that end up you know taking over the especially when my kids were younger there could be days where I literally didn't see them for days on end and it wasn't because I was traveling I just was up early and out the door and then home late and they were in bed that, that's just a bit of a tragedy right you, you literally miss you know, weeks on end of of seeing your seeing your kids grow and what for for a meeting for a I don't know an OKR review or something or other yeah I don't really think that that's yeah. worth it so I mean you know again it's um it's about it's really about best intentions obviously every now and again it goes completely awry and I'm, I'm quite erratic too so it could be that I have weeks of being super disciplined and, and managing to keep it all on track and then something will happen it will generally actually be that I won't go to the gym or work out for a couple of a couple of weeks and then I'm off the rails and then I know then it's like a complete reset and everything can sort of fall down and I have a month of that and then I have to pull myself back together again kick myself up up the bum and then get back on track sounds like those structures do really support you yeah, they do. Yeah. Oh no, I'd be, I'd be a nightmare if I didn't uh, if I didn't have that. I mean, also I have a a wife who's very very good at sort of keeping me in check too. So she she knows she knows well before I do when I'm sort of hitting that moment where I'm I'm getting too stressed or I'm taking on too much or not focused properly. Um, she's pretty good at flagging. She's probably my earliest early warning system. That's wonderful to have. My next question for you is, what's your favorite thing to do unplugged? And before you answer that, I should mention that you're one of the creators of Empty Day, which for those of us in North America might think of it as something like the National Day of Unplugging, a day to give up social media. So it sounds like unplugging is something that's important to you. So what's your favorite thing to do unplugged? I know I know that we would probably all have a device you know, with us all the time, but if I'm you know, generally, if I'm doing something other than working, I'm pretty much unplugged anyway. So if it's eating with friends, I, you know, I won't be there with my phone out, um, you know, texting or doing something else while I'm at the table. The same with watching a movie, or the same with going for a run. You know, I don't, I don't take my phone with me or, or anything else. Come the weekend, I'm barely, I'm barely on my phone, uh, you know, in the slightest or connected to anything. We're in the process of um, doing up a new house. You know, I don't want to have a connected house. I don't want to have my lights that, you know, being controlled by, uh, you know, geolocation. As I rock up, the lights will come on and my Sonos automatically plays Darth Vader or something other, you know. I don't need any of that stuff. You know, I quite look forward to, um, you know, putting a record on a record player and actually listening to the radio and uh, listen to the radio more, more so probably as everybody right at this moment in time. But I uh, listen to the radio and, and audio more than um than i've ever done and yeah i don't i don't i don't want to be that connected at all really it doesn't help mm. and i mean i mean there's a, there's another underlying part to this too which is um you know i have quite big concerns around you know what what data is being collected about us and what people are going to do with that data um i think a big part of my book was you know was about investigating who was collecting what and what information browsers were collecting about us as we use them and I understand how convenient it is. And then speaking to most people, you know, convenience is the biggest killer of, of our time because we'll give away everything in return for convenience. But um, I really don't want to be connected to um, you know, apps that you know, check my location and report back on what I'm doing. I, I just don't really trust that it's going to be used for, you know, for the right things in the future. And again, there is a really interesting conversation happening at the moment around Corona. You know what governments are doing to 
you know, to track people's location and how they're going to, you know, help people make sure that they're staying within the prescribed or outside of the prescribed areas um, and at the, at the right distance from everybody. And, you know, in Israel and Taiwan, these things are in effect right now that, and they've created, you know, digital fences around places to, to control um, people that have been put into quarantine. But, and these are just temporary solutions. I, I don't believe that they're temporary. I think once you put these things in place, they, they always seem to have uh, a very permanent status. Um, and where I think we're already seeing it happening is you know, insurance companies are using data based around um, you know, your movements in your car because you're using Google Maps to track your speed and to track uh, how erratic you drive and, and whether you're stopping at stoplights or you know, whatever else to help you reduce your premiums. It's never going to be to help you to reduce your premiums. It's always going to be to, you know, to penalize you or to, to charge you more or to penalize those that you know, do break the rules or had to rush to get to their wife to the hospital or something else. And that, sort of, that sort of data you know, and constant um, gifting of data from us to these faceless corporations concerns me. So that's the reason that I'm, you know, I'm quite often unplugged. You know, I, don't, I don't use Google Maps. I use an app called Jumbo that basically deletes uh, all of my location history every three months. It, like, it deletes all of my tweets past three months old. You know, I don't use Google products. I try to use um, like Cake Browser or DuckDuckGo or um, something else. Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't really use um, any tools really that have got anything to do with location tracking for that for this very reason. And I think it, you know, I think it's a super important lesson. The thing that I really realized though in writing my book was that most people unfortunately don't really understand it or care too much about it because convenience is is the most exciting thing for them that's why we started empty day it was really just about you know trying to get people to to value unplugging for one day only and understanding that if um you know they could just turn their phones off for one day it would have you know i think a major impact on on your lives if everybody did it there wouldn't be that fomo you wouldn't have the feeling that you are missing out on something but also there was another underlying part to it which was if you know, Facebook and Google are totally reliant on um, all of this information and data to, you know, to pay for the services and to you know, keep their servers running. It wouldn't it be amazing if we all left it alone for one day. The financial impact on these companies would, would be quite, you know, quite impactful. And I think it would make a lot of people wake up and question you know, what's happening and how much money are going to these two corporations. That's basically the, the whole media landscape has become a very small space of just a couple of companies. Well, let's dig into your book. So the book is The Trust Manifesto, What You Need to Do to Create a Better Internet. And you point out, and I'm going to quote you here, you say, I am not a technophobe. I work in tech. I am not knee-jerking against this, but I am inviting an appraisal. You're inviting an appraisal of the ways we've built the internet and the pieces you say we can reclaim and rebuild. Your focus is on big data or data scraping. And one of the things I enjoyed most about your book is your use of metaphor. So I'm wondering if you could help us with a metaphor to explain big data. At this very moment in time, big data, uh, I mean, you know, it's probably, it's probably already too late, but big data is everything you know about yourself and everything that you didn't know about yourself um, in the hands of a company that is going to use it um, to monetize products 
um, to sell to other people or to sell back to yourself. And you know, in so in my book, there's a um, a metaphor in the beginning which um, you know I really like because it was the moment that I think that my mum understood what it is that I was talking about. Where you know I said, "There's imagine that you're on the high street and you're walking down and you you pick up a pair of sneakers from a store. You don't particularly like them, so you set them back." And as you walk out of the store, the shop assistant follows you out of the store and follows you into the next store um, and you know, shows you a picture and asks you if you would be interested in, in reconsidering buying those sneakers. And you know, if this was to repeatedly happen as you walked along the high street in and out of different stores, it would be such a massive invasion of your privacy. I think that everyone would go crazy. I mean, you'd be screaming at this individual, telling them, you know, whatever. Um, but that's what happens on the internet. I mean, it's... And the, the thing that I think is fascinating is that we just accepted it as being normal, that the way that we should be treated online um, when you know, we spend a phenomenal amount of time in this space um, is we should be basically treated as morons. We should be treated um, as if you know, we, we can't make decisions on our own and we're not able to remember anything. So the only way that we can be reminded of stuff is to be continually hit literally around the head with these things, whatever it is, a service, uh, you know, a pair of sneakers, uh, uh, a video conferencing tool, whatever it might be, until you give in and purchase it. Um, and the thing, you know, that I think we did differently in the company and the thing that I, you know, that I would love other companies to, to think about too is if we're spending, you know, upwards of 20, 40, 60 hours a week online, and right at this moment, right, it's even more. This is the space. This is our new habitat. This is the cityscape that we're creating. If this is the place that we're living in and we're spending so much time, are these the conditions that we really want to live in? You know, are these, is this the norm that, you know, that we want to accept in the, in the way that people talk to us and work with us? Are these the sort of, uh, are this the language and the, um, uh, the tools that we're, going to, that we're going to accept as being normal and uh, acceptable in our society? And I would love everybody to just think about how we can use those things that we love about the offline world online. The more that we can think about the internet as a cityscape and as a place that we live in and that we, you know, we commute through and that we build in and that we, you know, educate within. Um, if we can think about that as in, in, in the same terms and frame as the offline world, then I think we'll create a much better, much richer, much more fun and safe place to live but right now in the cityscape that we've created we basically have data being oil and people mining it left right and center just extracting as much as they possibly can um literally in the way that the oil fields were mined in you know the turn of the century turn of the last century um and we know at a certain point that it's it's gonna it's gonna dry up but we're investing in it we're giving it away we're handing it over and there is nothing in place. There's literally no infrastructure to protect us or to protect that information. There is no neighborhood watch. There is no police. There is no um, you know, real government. There's no real control. Nothing is helping protect this cityscape that, we, that we've, we've built, we've enabled. And that's the, that's the piece that's, that's really missing at the moment. So a big part of the book was really asking people to, um, you know, to consider three things. One is, you know, look at the internet as a place that we are inhabiting and we are creating, you and me, not companies, but you and me. And then ask, you know, what do we want? What are we willing to give away? What, what, do, we, what do we want from this space and what do, we, um, what do we expect? 
The second part is as companies, if we're putting up shops or we're creating businesses or whatever else in this space, you know, what are we going to do and what values are we going to put down that, that we would do in the offline world and apply them to the online world and not think about the online world as this you know, prospecting town where we just got to go in and milk it as fast as we can and get out because that's, that's just not the reality. This is the place that we're going to spend a you know, big chunk of our lives going forwards. And then lastly, I think, and this is to individuals and companies, you know, we collectively have to speak to government and, um, you know, lobby for better regulation. You know, it can't be that four companies in the world can pretty much dominate the entire Internet. I mean, it's the largest cityscape that's ever been created, and it's pretty much controlled by four companies. The physical infrastructure that we're reliant upon at the moment through COVID-19 is pretty much, you know, Amazon. They are delivering packages to us in, all over the world. And that infrastructure is owned by one individual who's the wealthiest individual on earth who up until very recently hadn't give, given any money away to any charity at all. Obviously, recently he announced his mega $10 billion fund. But up until that very moment, this is a guy who, to be frank, is a bit of a megalomaniac. I think, you know, we need to ask government mm -hmm. to really consider what regulation needs to be put in place to ensure that this new cityscape is safe for our future generations. And I see us, you know, Tim Berners-Lee was the sort of pioneer. Then there's been this huge wave of prospectors coming to this town. You know, for our kids, we need to make sure that the architects and town planners and, you know, uh, uh, and the structure is in place to make sure that the, the grotty parts of the web that we've created and all the crap that's disappearing or, you know, it's just about short-termism is being gentrified. And, um, you know, like Citizen Jane, we need a few people to stand up and sort of fight for the rights of the internet there are they are out there but you know it's it's so big um that it's going to take a real concerted global effort to make it happen you say quote it's increasingly important these days to forgo worshiping the machine the seductive machines we've built are easy to worship at the same time it's increasingly important we all step up for a personal reckoning with the machine and then you later point out that it will be a minority, as you just mentioned, who will actually do it. It always says, you say. Then you go on to talk about UC Berkeley's Joe Hellerstein, who calls the moment we're in an industrial revolution of data. You write, we've heard the industrial revolution analogy before, but this time the analogy should give us pause. We're being pushed forward. The revolution is happening around us. The forward trajectory seems inescapable, but at what cost? You say, this is why now is the time for appraisal. And self-appraisal or disruption is not something Silicon Valley or the greater world of tech is interested in perfecting. We're going to need to do the work ourselves. And I know you touched already on those three core points that you're um, suggesting for individuals and for companies um, to take on. But if you were to just to speak to an individual listener right now, what are some steps that they could take right now to begin to turn this tide? I think, um, I mean, there are some very micro level things that can, you, you know, you, we as individuals can do immediately. So I would really question the need for everybody to use Google products. I think, you know, there are plenty of great alternatives out there. If I asked you, you know, whether you'd be willing to do all of your shopping, um, you know, within a Westfield shopping center and in, in doing so, you know, you need to hand over all of your information to Westfield and they'll make sure that everything is taken care of. I think you'd say, no, no I, you know, I like going to uh, Whole Foods and uh, Air One or 
and target or you know whatever else you want that freedom right you want to be able to choose and you want to be able to um have some independence and and not be reliant on one sole party at the moment the internet is pretty much facebook google amazon apple pretty much it um and you know, these companies are the richest most powerful companies you know on earth the individuals and it's this is the most worrying part the individuals that run them you know are you know, have sole control. Mark Zuckerberg has sole control over the entire Facebook organization, as does you know, Jeff Bezos. Is that is that decent? You know, who 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 would want that? Why would anybody need that? And I think if you ask yourself those questions, then I think everybody should hopefully get to the place they say, no, no, it's true. I I think if I had that much money, I'd be doing a lot more good, or I'd be trying to do something different. I think um, you know the next thing action you can take is just simply to stop you know using those products and look for look for alternatives there is a million alternatives to 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 google for you know searching the internet um or for you know planning a a, a route or a journey somewhere um the same goes for amazon you know you don't need to get a new swiffer mop within 2 hours um it's it's very convenient but you know if you really you do appreciate the high street and the small retailer then you know support them just go outside and go and you know buy something. I think those very simple steps, just looking around and taking a little bit more time um, to consider where you're where you're giving your time, your money, and your data, I think are really critical. You have created a different company in WeTransfer. You made a lot of decisions early on about the values that you had as a company in terms of respecting your users, listening incredibly well um, to your users about what their fears were, what their desires were. What would you say is your biggest pride in creating WeTransfer? I think the thing that gets me out of bed every morning is that we have a model um, whereby we give away 30% of all the advertising inventory that we have on the platform to support you know, good causes or creatives, artists, freelancers, um charities you name it and you know that that 30 percent is somewhere in the region of 300 million dollars that we give away um, and have done to support gun reform or you know homelessness in la or a photographer who's producing a, a program called legacy of war to you know, to, to, to um, even still um you know the war in in vietnam and on cambodia and places like that so it's that it's that inventory that I think, you know, is really impactful. Um, that is you know, very core to uh, WeTransfer's DNA. A big, re- a big part of the reason that people come and work at the company is because of that, that side of the business where we, you know, we do good. Um, I'm very proud of, of, of that. I mean, the fact that we have a, you know, a file sharing business that's used by 60 million people worldwide is, is great. But I think um, the fact that we managed to turn it into a machine that can really you know, do good and is trusted by millions um, and, you know, in a very simple manner can do, you know, and incre- can make quite a lot of difference today is, is really quite exciting. I'm, I'm very optimistic and excited about the idea that, we, you know, as we continue to grow, we can continue to do more good. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I never thought 10 years ago we'd be in this position that we are today. That's amazing. What do you think we need to live well in a wired world? What are the things that we need to support us to live well in a, a world that you describe as becoming our new city? Well, I mean, uh, just off the cuff today, we need each other, right? So that, you know, we need to um, need to fully understand that the internet is great, um, but, you know, it's not the be all and end all. And certainly we, we did a piece of research 
last year um, called the Ideas Report, and we asked you know people where they most got inspiration. No one was getting inspired from the internet. No one was getting inspired from being behind the screen. And people were finding inspiration from the outdoors, right? From the great outdoors, from parks, from beaches, from mountains, um, you know, or from being with people. So I think, you know, the most important thing that um, we have to remind ourselves is that we are, um, as a race, as a as a breed, you know, we are, uh, we have sort of pack mentality and we need to be around people, right? We can't have people permanently working remotely. Um, that I think is, you know, absolutely critical. The other part I think is that um, like everything, and I love the fact that we, you know, live back in the Netherlands, because here there is just a very good understanding of moderation. So in this market, you know, there are not tons of obese people walking around. There are not tons of billionaires or tons of people living on the streets. You know, it's, it's all pretty well managed. And some people would say that it's boring and others might say that, you know, it's, you know, it's Calvinistic or it's, um, it lacks ambition or the rest of it. But um, no, I think in general, it's just, it's just very modest. And, you know, that, that understanding, and if you understand and appreciate modesty and moderation, I think it stands you in really good stead. The internet is great, but like, you know, like a hamburger, if you eat it, you know, three times a day and every day for the rest of your life, you're not going to be in very good shape. You know, spending 10 hours a day behind the internet is not going to be good for anybody. But, you know, a couple of hours every now and again, it's going to be amazing. You can learn so much. You can do so much. Absolutely. I, I'm i so glad you shared that about the ideas report. I mean, I wish that we could see each other because I got the biggest <laughs> smile crept across my face because obviously uh, the name of the podcast uh, is the Jumbo Cast, and our entire theme is about the joy that we can find in missing out on the right things and the fact that all of these creatives are finding their inspiration in relationships, in the real world, in nature, um, and the connections they're making offline um, is just a delight to hear. And not surprising, but to have that confirmed in that report is quite amazing. And also what you said about needing one another. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree. Damien, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. So it's been a pleasure. I hope that you know everybody back there is safe and that next time that we do this, it'll be in real life as opposed to behind video conference. That would be amazing. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about our guests in the show notes and by visiting jomocast.com. The Jomocast is edited and music composed by Thomas J. Inge. Visit Tom online at tinge, that's T-I-N-D-G-E, to learn more about Tom and his services. The JomoCast is listener supported. Sign up as a patron at patreon.com forward slash JomoCast. Patreon support makes the podcast possible. For just $3 a month, you will keep these conversations going. That link again is patreon.com forward slash JomoCast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast with your provider of choice. And if you loved this episode, leave us a five-star review. These reviews are a powerful way you can help us reach more listeners. I'm your host, Christina Crook. Thanks for listening. And may you find joy missing out on the right things.